Hello, heroes. Welcome to Modifier. I'm your host, Megan Dornbrock. Hey, heroes. We're back with the second half of the Unfamiliar Heroes interview that began last month. If you haven't listened to it, I recommend going back and starting there, but this episode does stand just fine on its own, in my opinion. Unfamiliar Heroes is an actual play podcast run by Faye Onyx that centers around diverse characters and players, and Jordan Green and Anna Murray are two GMs involved in the project. For more about making games accessible to diverse players, visit the first half of the interview. In this half, I continue talking with Faye, Jordan, and Anna about disabled, chronically ill, and neurodiverse characters in games. This half in particular, we talk about mechanics that aim to recreate or facilitate those experiences, and also what to consider when playing a character like this. Let's get to the show. Then I think we will jump into talking more in-depth about disability in the fiction of the game, having characters that are portrayed, uh, how we deal with mechanics and things like that. Why don't we actually start? Um, Rob Day on Twitter sent a, a, a good question, I think, to start us off. And he'd like to know if there are any systems that have just just nailed integrating disabilities into the, the mechanics, or if that's a thing that's best left to the flavor of a game, like in the fluff. I would say, for me at least, there's some danger in leaving it to the flavor, but that's still what I would recommend because integrating disability into mechanics almost always ends up being a penalty of some kind, which inherently sends a message that disability is a limitation. And then often characters, especially if you get points, like the the White Wolf system is probably maybe one of the worst, because if you take a disability in your character creation, you get more points to make other things. So there's an actual incentive Mm -hmm. for people to take a disability without Mm. actually any intention of, I want to play a disabled character. And then the character then is like, okay, so I'm going to overcome this Mm -hmm. disability with magic. And so then it's like basically inviting people to play disabled characters in a bad way that doesn't match real life experiences. Yeah. I mean, I haven't really seen anything that has been intentional about disability in the game mechanic. Um in a way that makes disability not feel like a thing, like make yeah. it feel like a burden. Yes. And so, so for me, I really try to leave it to the flavor of the people. Cause also like the thing about disability is like different people have different interpretations of what is disability. Yeah. Um, and so like you could have, I mean, Theoretically, you could have a group out there of folks who all have physical disability and they're like, cool, but we all like playing Pathfinder. So we're going to, and we want our characters to be disabled. So we're going to think through some of these gaming mechanics. Yeah. Um, but like, I would really, if it is, if there's somebody who knows of a gaming system that's like, this is created for and by disabled people. Um, where disability is taken into consideration, mm-hmm. I want to hear about it. Yeah. And I want to play it because I haven't <laughs> found anything like that. Yeah. And and I think the thing that I would say also is that in, in my experience that I've had so far and a few very bad fumbles a long time ago, that one of the, the big things is just take disability, if it's already in the system, like take it out of the system as a penalty if possible and kind of just like 
if someone wants to play a character with a disability, it's kind of like, okay, so what adaptive devices does that character have? How do they live their everyday life? What do they do to get their needs met? And just give that to the character. So it's not a, so there's no penalty or benefits coming from it. It's just, how does your character operate? Okay, you have the things you need to do that, uh, whatever that operation is. Um, so there's no costs either in terms of, oh, now I have to buy, buy, um, access, you know, accessibility devices, or I have to get a companion animal, um, and have to pay for that. Just maybe just take care of that entirely outside of the game mechanics in terms of purchasing or points and stuff. Okay. Yeah. I, I think the other thing I would say, and this might be wandering a little bit, is that it's actually, I've noticed, I listen to a lot of gaming podcasts, and it's kind of, one thing I've noticed is that if someone who doesn't have a disability is playing a disabled character, or a character even with something like, oh, my character has a bad knee, um, and that's why they're not an active soldier anymore, but then they get thrust into um, a war or whatever, all of a sudden, that bad knee is not actually affecting them. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And maybe, like, there'll, there'll be some flavor stuff occasionally. Of Occasionally when they get a break, oh, my knee hurts so much. And it's totally true. Like, adrenaline, you might not notice it that one day uh, when you're fighting for your life. But it, it is – that is one of the challenges of not having any mechanical reminder um, is that, like, unless it's your lived experience – it's really easy to just forget entirely. And so I think that's why it is helpful to kind of work out, like, how does your character operate beforehand and make sure the GM is aware of that um, mm. so that it doesn't just disappear, um, but also it doesn't end up being a mechanical thing that reinforces the idea that it's lesser to be disabled. Sure. But I, I'm wondering then, do you think there would be points in the gameplay when having uh, like an advantage or a disadvantage based on your different ability does actually serve the story? Um, yeah, thinking but- of things like... Like, uh, it, just in mm-hmm. fantasy settings where, where dwarves typically have dark vision mm-hmm. or something that, that gives them this advantage, but maybe a, a, a detriment in other lighting situations. I played the character where I had a companion animal, and that companion, like, there were multiple times where that companion animal was threatened. And it added, a, and like, again, what Faye does at the beginning where there's situ like ask where there are situations where people are like that won't fly uh will help avoid some of the some of this but like um it was really important for my character that my companion animal be safe at all times and it was really in- integral to that character being able to play and so i think for me like i did see some really cool ways in which we set up plot points around something happening to my companion animal mm-hmm. or something happening to not just the companion animal, but something happening where the, the bond between my companion animal and I was threatened. Um, and like, I think those are important stories to tell as yeah. well. Like I, this is where I would somewhat disagree with what Faye was saying and not in a bad way, sure. but like, you know, I think that if you were playing in a game in which characters are pulling themselves up from poverty and linking to, like, how disability and poverty are intrinsically tied together. Sure. And, like, that character's whole motivation for 
are doing an adventure or going on a quest is to get the thing that they've been wanting to help them navigate the world. Like, that's a really very interesting and very great mm-hmm. plot point. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Especially when um, so often we see disabled folks being, like, the motivation, but not the actor, yeah, right? And yeah, so, yeah, like, yeah. You, you have, like, folks who's like, I'm trying to get this for my blind, like, my blind brother who can't navigate the world, and that's why I'm, like, going on this 18-year quest to become a god. And it's uh, like, why can't the blind brother do that, right? Yes. <laughs> so, like, Absolutely. I think that... Yeah, I think that in in like if you're playing like in Pathfinder for instance, if you're playing Pathfinder characters and you're all starting off at level 6 and you're all like sort of seasoned adventurers in that world, um starting from a place of like, well cool, like your disabled character already has a um already has their uh, assistive devices or assistive mechanics in place mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it's about figuring out how to do move not you as a k- player figuring out how your character does that cool but if you're all starting from level zero or level one and that happens or if your character along the way becomes disabled throughout the world like i think those are also really good good ways to understand disability and yeah have a character uh, move throughout the world and know what, how they're going to get along, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I just wanted to also make the point, it's okay for disabled characters to be impacted by their disabilities. Like, it's okay for that to be a, a thing that does impact them and, and make challenges. Um, as long as they're not being limited to that. Because it's it's important to have the disability be real and affect people. Mm-hmm. At the same time, there's this big temptation to make the character entirely about their disability. And it's like, well, maybe they're being impacted or and limited by that. But – and maybe they're even on a quest for a thing. But there needs to be more to their life, you know? Mm-hmm. Um because I don't think yeah. there's anyone I know who's like even people who are like hugely p- part of disability culture, like and and they do disability activism as a disabled person, and that's a huge part of their lives. That still doesn't mean that they're not dating someone or that they don't have hobbies or just like real people are full, you know, mm-hmm. even when your life is centered around aspects of like my life is completely shaped by the fact of how my brain works. Right. But that still doesn't mean that that is like all that my life is about. Um, and so I think that's the kind of thing is like finding that balance of not reducing the character to their disabilities, but having the disability have an impact on them. Yeah. And I think that your, your idea of like, are there places where that impact will come up or places where they'll have a benefit? You know, I think that, that is real to real life in terms of like at the very least there's certain levels of compassion that a person might have from experiencing something um or understanding that person might have from experiencing something that other people might have not have <laughs> so in terms of that there's also however this kind of myth that when you become disabled you get this extra thing to make up for it <laughs> i would suggest yeah. avoiding that um <laughs> 
Wait, you mean I don't get an extra thing? I get the superpower oh, to sprain my ankle uh, lying on the couch. I, I don't know about you, but that is the best superpower. Yeah, I was, I was really hoping my ADHD gave me like extras, like extra taste buds or something. That would be great. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was I was thinking like kind of stereotypical like D and D kind of um, mechanically. If if I were to stat myself as a character, I would I yeah I would get a penalty to like seeing checks. But then again, yeah. I wouldn't roll those. Right. You know, yeah. it's not that I get a bonus to something else. It's just that I would choose something else to do. You would maybe do you know, a, that's... a listening check or a smell check. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that definitely comes down to like how how well you role play these characters, right? Um, to their experience, and I think there's also this thing where it's kind of like a person who's lived with a disability for a period of time is not the same thing as a person who suddenly magically got a thing. So the difference between right. being a blind person and a sighted character who was magically blinded for a second, um, mm-hmm. so like. If you're, you know, in terms of playing characters, a low vision character or a blind character is not, you know, they know how to operate, right? you know, mm-hmm. without sight or with limited sight. And they have worked out whatever system they have for doing that, um, which gets kind of more, in, you know, interesting variety in fantasy systems. But um, they've got that worked out. Whereas if you get a sighted character and they're suddenly, oh, you suddenly can't see – there, that character is suddenly going to be missing on their attacks and stuff, um, mm-hmm. or whatever's going on. But it shouldn't necessarily apply in the same way to a character who's actually blinded. And that's the case of mechanics. Like the blinded mechanics in Pathfinder are for sighted characters who suddenly become blind um, because of magic. That is not the same thing as an actual character who's lived with this and who knows how to shoot their bow based on sound or whatever they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, or fire off spells based on sound, you know. So it's also the kind of thing of like looking at the mechanics and how they're geared and kind of bending them to be like, okay, but it's different to be a, it's different when the person's lived with it for a long time. I have a new appreciation for the Oracle class in Pathfinder now. Yeah. Like, in this conversation, (laughs) my thoughts have gone both ways on it, and I'm now feeling like, hmm, yeah, a blind, like, my Oracle, the mechanically good one, is blind, but I never really thought about how much, yeah, she can, at low level, she could only see 30 feet in any direction from her. That's, That's her entire world. And what would be terrifying to her... Mm-hmm. At high levels, even though she can now do other things, it's, I've this has been an interesting conversation. <laughs> my um, just as a brief aside, my favorite character, uh, my favorite uh, class to play is Rage Prophet. Um, <laughs> I've not heard of that one. Which is a yeah, it's a combo of. I'm looking it up right now. It's a combo of the Oracle class and mm-hmm. uh, I think the Barbarian class. Wow. I'm into this. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, yeah, it's a uh, Rage Prophet. They're really great. Uh, they're Oracle class feature, but they also mm-hmm. have clarity of rage powers. So yeah, they're one of my favorite uh, classes. To- here, I'm going to drop them in here. But yeah, I like, 
I don't bring it up for any sort of disability reason. I just, that's like my favorite uh, character. Like I'm a familiar, familiar with oracles because you have to start off as a, either an oracle or a barbarian to become a rage prophet. Um, yeah. I want to play Pathfinder now. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> this is exactly up my alley. I, I, I had a thought of just kind of, in terms of also, you know, how to include disabled characters in a game setting, I think a big, big thing is just thinking about your game setting and accessibility. And if you're going for a culture that is an accessible culture, so say Star Trek is got a general sense of everyone's equal and we care about access and we have all these different space aliens of all different kinds, each with different bodies and access needs and access for everyone um, is kind of the worldview of Star Trek, for example. And yet the starships uh, are designed with vertical decks stacked on each other. And it's like, and then whenever emergency power kicks in, like an emergency situation and the power gets cut, everyone's like trapped on their Mm -hmm. deck. And I'm like, Yep. What if there were, was just instead of this skyscraper ship, it was a giant spiral? You'd still be able to use turbo lifts, but the actual corridors would literally spiral up and down the ship. And if power got cut, you could literally just run or use your wheelchair or whatever to get to any part of the ship you needed, assuming there wasn't like a, a breach in the hull. And it's like, and so it's kind of the aspect of also rethinking what the world is like, um, because there's things built into the world, worlds that are kind of based on our culture of like limited access uh, of modern U.S. society, where there's some access, but our our model for building skyscrapers is still vertical floors stacked on top of each other. If a person in a wheelchair is in uh, a multi-story building and there's a fire, there's just like designated places they're supposed to go to and wait for a fire person to physically carry you out of the building. What if there were ramps? What if the floors were a spiral? Like, (laughs) You know, maybe modern technology that would be cost prohibitive. I don't know. But like in future technology, they should be able to do that, you know. And so that kind of thing of what is stopping someone in a wheelchair from having the same kind of access to physical safety and movement throughout a building that someone who's not using a wheelchair um, to meet their moving needs. What What is that difference? And does it need to be that way? Ooh, that's interesting. And related to that, do you do you guys know of any games that they don't handle it mechanically very well? But do you know of any games that handle this in the fluff better in the in the narrative stuff or in the in the advice section of the of the book at all? Not off the top of my head. I can't think of very many games that address disability or neurodiversity at all except when they make it into a mechanical thing that mm-hmm. they're doing. So like I can't like for example Pathfinder Dungeons and Dragons I can't recall any stuff that actually addresses disability or neurodiversity outside of when they decided to make it part of a mechanic mm-hmm. uh, or like White Wolf have this whole thing with the Malkavian clan and it you know like so there's there's a lot of stuff around neurodiversity, especially the concept of madness, where it's been part of a mm-hmm. thing. 
I have heard one suggestion, which is there's there's some games that are really dependent on a insanity mechanic, Call of Cthulhu stuff, where it's just super core to the mm-hmm. game, where it's a lot harder to just like be, oh, we're going to twist this. And I actually heard a really good suggestion for what to do about that, which is that stress is universal to humans. Uh, pretty much all humans experience stress mm. and extreme stress does a whole bunch of physiological things that each person's can respond differently and extreme stress can produce all sorts of interesting brain things. But it's not the same thing as giving a character mental illnesses specifically. And the idea of yeah. replacing insanity mm-hmm. mechanics with stress mechanics where, sure, like you get a really stressed out character, maybe they will start hallucinating. But taking that as a separate thing that is more universal and is less about stigmatizing people uh, who are considered mentally ill or who have diverse brains. So making that separation. Um, So I guess most of... I, I, I can't think of anything that actually is like, this system actually addressed it and is doing great. But I can think of really awesome ways that people are suggesting to work with systems that have problems. (laughs) I do want to say really fast that that particular suggestion came out of a different podcast I listened to, which is the Myth Creants podcast, episode 127, Mental Health Systems in Role-Playing Games. And it did give me some good stuff to think about. Awesome. Cool. I will link that as well. Thank you. I have two thoughts on the sort of stress, mental health thing. Um, Inspectors, the game that I ran for Unfamiliar Heroes, has a built-in stress mechanic. And that's sort of where it's like, things range from, if you're not familiar with Inspectors, it's a, if Ghostbusters was a franchise kind of game. And so there's, you have the stress of, you got cut off in traffic, you need to make a roll, um, because everybody reacts to getting cut off in traffic. Sometimes it's just like, I'm okay. That was awesome. I just handled that perfectly. And oh my God, I am not handling this well. I need to eat something. And it goes all the way up to like, you know, you just saw your friend get eaten or something. The more dice, the harder it was to just shrug it off. And then there's this game called Dread, Mm -hmm. which is a Jenga tower based Mm -hmm. role playing game. And it's, and when it went featuring disability, it's, 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 got its own issues but <laughs> it's a horror game with no quote-unquote mm-hmm. insanity mechanic the entire mechanic is your character does something that's challenging you pull a determined number of jenga blocks and when the tower falls over because you either knocked it over intentionally or unintentionally your character is eliminated um however mm-hmm. the gm wants to roll it and and as someone who's very bad at Jenga, it means my character that has some interesting implications. But those two are very, I think, ways of saying, oh, well, I don't know where I was going with this with the Jenga tower, but um, definitely the stress mechanic of inspectors. Yeah, I wanted to comment because, you know, there's a mechanic that's very similar in uh, Monster Hearts. It talks about sort of like, the ghoul particularly the ghoul has this thing where they just like sometimes cannot let a thing go hunger the hunger the hunger yeah and so like understanding that and like 
connecting it to uh, disability, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. where there are folks whose brains literally can't let a piece of information go for whatever mm-hmm. reason. It's a really interesting way of framing that, mm-hmm. but they don't, to my knowledge, it hasn't been intentional about how they set that up. Yeah. Yeah, I think Monster Hearts has some of that in it a little bit in terms of neurodiversity, just because the idea is it's like a supernatural teenage monster drama. So like everyone's vampires, witches and all that stuff. And each character, each monster type, each character is a type of monster. And each monster type is basically kind of like a somewhat maladaptive, stereotypical teenage coping behavior. Or, right. or or strategy for addressing life. So, like, in that game, my character is a witch, and witches are about being kind of, like, secretive and judgmental. So, because it is aimed at getting at these kind of social slash mental dynamics, uh, some of them do kind of definitely get into space where it's a way of getting at certain aspects of neurodiversity or making room for them without specifically otherizing them as like a specific thing or forcing players to play them in a specific way. So I think there is some aspects of Monster Hearts and some games like it that do get at that really well, but maybe less intentionally. Yeah, I think for me it was more so of a like less, like when you do it in a mechanic, thinking about it in a way that does it doesn't otherwise specific like in a very specific way mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. because like for me even saying something like oh this is something that teenagers deal with and like you know when you're an adult and supposedly have your shit together <laughs> you don't do this do this anymore is like kind of mm. kind of infantilizing of folks with brains that may not allow them to stop doing those things. Yeah, and I and I think it was the game is aimed at recreating this sort of teenage dramas kind of like Buffy the yeah, Vampire totally. Slayer. But yeah, I think totally. that there is that 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 can be an interesting dynamic of teen focused games of where there is some desire of wanting characters to be able to grow up and become mature, but then that does kind of create some interesting things of well, what if your brain isn't capable of changing in this particular way. But one of the things like what Anna was saying about like stress mechanics and having alternative mechanics, like the inspector's mechanic works really well. And Mm -hmm. the, uh, the whole dread with the Jenga tower, at least in terms of not making it about insanity mental illness not making um the stress mechanic or the the horror base mechanic around that and instead centering it elsewhere is really cool but then as anna said like because it's a physical jenga tower that then becomes a situation where it's not accessible to a wide number of players because of what's going on in their minds bodies skill sets whatever that it they're going to always be the one who knocks it over and then that becomes right. a system a situation of well how do is there a different thing we could do instead that would work better or what if you designated someone to do it for you would you feel equally mm-hmm. empowered uh in the game right yeah. 
And I know dread is one in particular that's come up before um, we've talked about. Yeah, there's there's some folks who have some interesting I- ideas on uh, substituting a dice mechanic that seems interesting. I wonder if it gives, you know, the same level of because there is a there is a level of anxiety that's expected and, and, and built into that particular game. Uh, I wonder if it, if it feels the same in actual yeah. play. I, I also have a lot of trouble playing Jenga, so I have not actually played Dread yet. Like, <laughs> it, uh, it makes me nervous. Yeah. As someone with anxiety, that's just, yeah. I didn't do horror games. <laughs> um, at some point, maybe I'll record a horror game where maybe a light yeah. horror game that I'm like not participating in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, but, I like that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Help other people play. I'll just sit over here. (laughs) Cool. We were talking a little bit earlier about how to make these games work for you. And it's the the stress mechanic seems to be one of those things substituting problematic terminology. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. So so, uh, what else have you guys got? Anyone else want to jump in? I've, as you know, I have more than enough to say. Well, I know this. Just thinking about being forced to think about these things has made me reevaluate this game that I'm hopefully going to be running in the next couple of weeks, which is going to be Starfinder because it's going to be everybody's pretty much starting at ground level. Myself, all the players, nobody's like, oh, I'm jumping into Pathfinder and there's like about a million pages of stuff to begin with. It's not a terribly rules light system, Starfinder, but I haven't read the whole core rulebook cover to cover. Not that I've read the Pathfinder core rulebook cover to cover. But nobody, I don't expect people to be like, oh, well, this choice is mechanically better than this choice. And that, I think, is a culture thing that really needs to go out the window. Um, I have friends who are like, well, why are you making this suboptimal oh, choice? Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's more interesting. And I, th- and especially in the context of disability, suboptimal choices are like how you would create it in a rules heavy system. And I use suboptimal in the, not min ma- in the min max sense or yeah. optimized sense, not like any mm-hmm. other sense. Mm-hmm. That's like my character would make this decision. My character, yeah, yeah, would hate wizards and not focus ex- like because of stuff that happened to her and choose arcane vendetta over the next weapon spec feat. I did not pull that example out of a hat. Yeah, <laughs> but, um, yeah, yeah. So. Making in-character choices is really important, I think, to represent a, dis- a disabled character. Um, yeah, I'm kind of losing the plot. Sorry. That's okay. Um, Anna, you've you've mentioned like Pathfinder and and Starfinder a lot, and that's also come up in uh, other parts of our conversation as being a particularly difficult system. Is there something that keeps bringing you back to it? Um, mostly the the inability to change my gaming groups game to anything else <laughs> i would love to be Fair love to be able to play um either shadow run the newest edition i think is sixth i don't know we have the core rule book sitting on our shelf um i'd love to get a game of dragon age uh going hey. which is a really fun thing because i love the dragon age video games and the system's actually fairly rules light for like a mm-hmm. heavy fantasy system it's like the age role playing system or something by green mm-hmm. ronin and it, all it requires is three six-sided dice so nice. yep. pretty accessible to someone who wants to go out and buy some dice two need to match one doesn't <laughs> 
Yeah, that's a it's it's a good system that I've I've had some experience with lately, and it it gets a a little complicated if you want to be a magic user, but I think that's kind of uh, par for the course. <laughs> but otherwise, yeah, it's it's pretty straightforward. Yeah. I do want to say for myself, at least, like wh- why I'm playing Pathfinder is because specifically the Pathfinder company puts out adventure paths and that's what my group is playing. And the reason like we're playing it is because it seems like the people at Pathfinder just, I might call them, I, I kind of, the, the, the word mature is kind of, I'm not sure what would be less pr- problematic, but they're, they seem like, they're more mature gamers aiming at more uh, audience of more mature gamers. And again, that word's kind of problematic in terms of how it, it addresses um, different kinds of uh, developmental disabilities and stuff. But they, but basically what's really cool about them is that they have queer characters. They have people of color. They have plots that they have plots that have create importance for non-player characters and have significant non-player characters. They have good trans representation. Um, they have... So the adventure path we're playing, Wrath of the Righteous, we've had to s- substitute the word crusade with reclamation because the whole idea mm-hmm. is that demons have invaded this plane and we're pushing them back. And that is not what the crusades were. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we yes. have... so it's you know in some ways it's a little more like pushing out the colonizers um than it is a crusade so that is a very important substitution we've made in our gaming group but there's actually a a non-player character who is a a well-characterized trans woman with a a lesbian partner in in a queer romance and there's a gay couple um there's multiple non-player characters who are significant who are people of color so, because, and the stories, although they're still pretty combat focused, there's a lot of like, you can convincing people to join your side. So it's not just slay everything. And so because of that game content is why our gaming group is working through, we're going to go all six books. We are just about to start book four. Um, <laughs> oh, nice. um, but anyway, that's why we're doing it because of this game content um, that is really rich and pre-designed and complicated. Yeah, I love Paizo's just general culture that they've created. I go to PaizoCon, I've gone every year since like 2011, so I can tell you the name of the dev who who has created all these wonderful trans women, trans characters, and all the really good-looking half-orcs. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that she's amazing. And so I really, really like the stuff that they put out. And that's another reason we play a lot of Pathfinder is because they're really well-meaning people who are doing good things. Yeah, excellent. They they haven't really gotten there on disability neurodiversity yet, Mm -hmm. but they've they're the fact that they're able to portray trans characters that are queer that have respectfully developed histories that trans people can feel good about that's so huge yeah that's awesome and um I, that, that uh, I, I think it was crystal fraser who's responsible for a lot of the really good-looking women half works i think it was her who said that they wanted to create get rid of get rid of the the narrative of like 
half orcs that is existent in a lot of fantasy culture, and they wanted people to come from long noble lines of half orcs. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really interesting idea. And there's actually like a city that's like the bulk of the population is half orc, and they're nice. descended from long no- noble lines of half orcs. Nice. But that's definitely in the in the game we're playing. Uh, the what the the partner of the the trans woman uh, is a, a really awesome half orc paladin who is from a line of half orcs that are noble. So oh, cool! Hey, yeah. I'm learning all all kinds of stuff about Paizo. I didn't know. Awesome. Well, if you wanted to, <laughs> did you have a, a, a want to take the conversation back to more directly <laughs> the topic? Yeah, yeah, that's okay. Um, so. That's that is very cool. And then um, your first game with unfamiliar heroes is uh, Monster Hearts. So, what appealed about that system? Yeah. So for me, one of the big things was that Monster Hearts allows for a broader range of stories to easily be told than, say, Pathfinder or Dungeons and Dragons. As much as I love Pathfinder and Dungeons and Dragons, uh, as I said previously, I could not imagine myself going out and doing an adventure in that world. And I feel like there's a lot of characters, in terms of anxious characters, that would not... You can make... And I want to actually... I actually want to make a game where it's a bunch of characters who are specifically not the kinds of people who would go out on the adventures and they're just living their lives in a city and some threat comes to the city and they deal with it completely through not violence because they're mentally or physically not warriors. Um, and someday, hopefully, I will have that game on my podcast. Um, I'm still trying to find the right GM for that. But... There's a challenge in how the system is created. And so what I liked about Monster Hearts is that it really lends itself to a range of stories. You can have characters that go out and search for trouble. Um, You can also have characters where they're just living their lives and trouble comes to them. And that allows for a very diverse range of characters. And being socially focused rather than combat focused, again, it really expands the range of what people can do in terms of characters and in terms of neurodiversity and disability where it is just able to be part of who the character is and not mm-hmm. just um, a limitation or it, it doesn't come across as a limitation or wouldn't be a factor that would prevent the character from going on the adventure in the first place. So that that's what attracted me. And Jordan, had you played before running this game? No. Was, was this a system that you know? Oh, okay, cool. What? <laughs> I was going to ask uh, how you felt about the system. Uh, you know, it was the one of the few times I played. Um, I come from a background where I'm deeply entrenched in rule heavy stuff. So, like before playing Monster of Hearts, I had played Shadowrun, D and D, White uh, Amalgamation of White Wolf and uh, Pathfinder, and so. I really liked the Monster Hearts mechanics. It was really, really good um, in terms of this rural light system that was super adaptable and allowed people to... I, and I guess the, the actual game engine is powered by the apocalypse, yes. not Monster Hearts. Um, but it really allowed people to, I feel like, just pick up and like play the game. I liked narrating it because... It allowed for collective storytelling in a much 
more free way, I feel yes. like, than, yes. um, how do I put this? Then there's a lot of real lawyering that happens in these more complicated systems yeah. where people are like, I want to do this thing. So I studied these core rule books and found this like one comma misplaced on page 34 that totally allows mm. me to do this thing. Um, which is fine, but it's, it kind of takes away from the accessibility of the game. So I, I really liked, I really liked Monster Hearts Empowered by the Apocalypse to, for, for that reason, um, as a, as a GM, I felt like it was a very forgiving system versus something like if you're playing with more seasoned or more experienced players in a, in a, uh, and you're jamming them in something like Pathfinder or D and D. They'll they'll totally rule lawyer you, uh, rule lawyer you uh, yeah. in one way or the other to get to have their ways done. And so, like having a looser system with a few uh, constraints allows for people to express themselves in a way where they don't have the cognitive load of thinking about how am I actually going to do this? Yes. Oh, you brought up so much, so many good points. Cause I think that there's like, that's one of the things about a rules light system that's well-designed is it gets out of the way. And if there's something you want to do, you don't have to torture the rules until they let you do it. Um, And so, as you said, there's less cognitive load of like, because right. it kind of encourage rules heavy systems kind of encourage people to do that because eventually there's something someone wants to do and there's just not a rule for it and then it's like well how do I do it mm-hmm. and it yeah. rewards people for doing that mechanically whereas Monster Hearts just gets out of the way. Also, Monster Hearts does encourage a little more collaboration from the players in terms yeah. of world creation. Yeah, and like that's really awesome. I really, I, I guess that's what I meant by. Uh, collaborative storytelling and I guess I should be more specific like the you know we had a session zero where we just got to know the characters and knowing the characters helped create the world and you know as a GM I went in and I kind of had an idea about you know some tropes I wanted to fill or a general framework of the world but then the the characters themselves, the players themselves, actually really gave life to some of these things. There were, you know, I was taking notes during the initial session, and, you know, a character that is offhandedly mentioned in character creation, I'm like, that character is now this, I'll plug it in into this framework. And so you have these, you really get a chance for player buy-in, when they're like, oh, my character is now a central part of this plot. Or like, my my backstory is now woven into the fabric of the world that we live in. Yeah, Pathfinder doesn't really allow that. It kind of, the mechanics of a lot of these other worlds is like, the game master, like even the terminology, right? Like the game master is the one who like, is the the one who controls everything. And I've heard people in the gaming sessions, very fun gaming sessions, uh, refer to the game master as God. And I'm like, I don't want that kind of experience <laughs> for folks who are like, well, I don't want that kind of experience, but I also don't want that kind of experience from folks that come from places where they're 
already oppressed and they already have to kowtow to people who are making up the rules as they go or like using arbitrary yeah, rules, yeah. you know? So mm-hmm. I really like the monster heart empowered by the apocalypse system because it allows people to uh, collaborate and, especially when we're talking about folks who have disabilities or who are traditionally or historically marginalized in some way, like they have, um, they have the power to like really shape the world and really tell a story that involves them and is not like where they're not involved before. Oh, sorry. Megan, was there something you wanted to say? (laughs) No, I think that's really well put. Uh, Go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to add just a couple quick things. I just want to say a quick shout out to Avery Alder, the creator of Monster Hearts, who yeah. gave us advanced access to yeah, Monster totally. Hearts 2 so that we could play it on our podcast, which was awesome, uh, as well as mentioning that um, Monster Hearts is a system that really, because it's so socially focused, it really does work really great for like long form stories mm-hmm. and uh, that we are intending to uh, pick up this monster heart story and continue it in long form to some degree, probably adding in yeah. some additional characters. And I just thought that that's something worth mentioning is that uh, some systems lend themselves best to long form or short form storytelling. And I think monster hearts is particularly lends itself to long form. Yeah. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about role-playing these types of characters, uh, considering if it's something that they've been, that they were born with, that they've adapted to, uh, if it's, if it's a temporary thing, uh, you know, using your own lived experience to, to guide this. Uh, but one of the listener questions we had on Twitter is from, uh, Arya Allwright. And she was asking, uh, how would one go about playing a character with a disability they do not personally have? Uh, she says, I get asked this a lot and never know how to answer. So such a good question. And that's something that I've been thinking about a whole bunch in part because I'm not a, I'm not a very experienced game master. And so I will probably be game mastering at some point. But mostly I'm a player. And so for every game I have like a new character um, that I'm making. So I've definitely been thinking about like, I've listened to a lot of podcasts, uh, gaming podcasts, both for my personal enjoyment and also as research. It's nice when those two things are the same thing. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And one of the things I've really noticed is it can get really offensive if someone's playing an experience that isn't theirs and they're not Mm -hmm. really thinking about it. Mm -hmm. And I've definitely gone through some very painful listening experiences where I'm just like, I have to stop this one Um, because, because the person was not playing their experience and, and wasn't doing it respectfully. Mm -hmm. And, and so I'm like, how do I prevent people from doing that on mine? Uh, and so actually I have a set of game ground rules and what I came up with is that mm-hmm. the farther away from your personal experience you get, the more research you need to do. Yeah. And that's kind of just the, the way that I've gotten to it is just that. The other thing also is I follow a blog, a Tumblr blog called Writing with Color and oh, and also for myself as a writer, you know, um, I write a lot of characters that are people of color because there's just not enough representation of characters who are people of color and because that that's important to me. And so, again, it's like, how do I do this respectfully? And what some of the stuff I've gleaned from that 
that blog is the idea that there are certain kinds of stories it is appropriate for, say, a white person to do as an author that includes pe- characters who are people of color. And there's other kinds of stories where they should only really be told by people who live that experience. And the, the kind of the thing is, like, for example, if the story is deep into a specific culture and the nuances of cultural meanings around religion or any kind of deeply significant cultural thing, if the story is going to center a cultural struggle, that needs to be written by someone who's from that culture who can correctly and accurately represent what that struggle is. However, you can have a kick-ass superhero who is a person of color and who has their culture present, but that they're in meaningful ways, which is respectful. I need to research to do that. But the, because the story isn't centered around the nuances of any struggles they're having with their culture or whatever, a white author is capable of representing that respectfully. And that's kind of what I gleaned from this. And I feel like it's kind of the same thing for pretty much any oppressed identity where it's basically like that if, if your story, if you wanted, if you're going to delve into the nuances of deep meanings of things, uh, and explore a person having conflicts and having to come to terms with something relating to that oppressed, deeply ingrained in that oppressed identity, that person needs to be from that identity and that is it, that you could it's it, you definitely it's fine to have a little bit of you know like conflict or whatever coming up but that that deep exploration of the meaning of things relating to an oppressed identity uh, should come from someone who has it yeah i think for me what i would say for someone who had that question would be why do you want to play that character And what sort of, like, keep asking yourself why and what sort of traits are you hoping that this disability or attribute of a person is going to bring to the character and the character's story? And if you haven't thought about those things, that is actually a great place for you to start Mm -hmm. um, with a character. How does, like, how do you, as a sighted person, play a blind character? And why did you decide to make, like, people don't, like, nothing happens by accident, especially when we're coming about uh, gaming systems and when we're talking about character creation, everything is by design. So what are, what experience are you designing for this character? What story, if you're presenting this story out into the world or even just to your friends, what story are you presenting about that character? And I think these are... Um, with any time you play the other, like, those are the questions you should ask yourself. Right. Oh, that's such a good point. Like, automatically. It's just like, what are you, what story are you telling about this character? Um, And I don't, I I don't know um, a lot of people think about that. And that's actually where, that's actually where the, the friction comes from when we think about representation is that, Yes. The tr- the creation of these characters was thoughtless, or if it wasn't thoughtless, it wasn't handled with the same kind of intimacy and lovingness that characters yes. who are closer to your normal are handled with. Right, and right. So, yeah, I just, if you're going to play a character, like, I'm not going to tell you not to do something, but I am going to ask you to 
like ask questions where like I am going to ask that you ask questions about why you're doing a particular thing. And I find that like even asking questions isn't it's not for me to like discourage you from doing it but have you think a little deeper and people like some people don't want to think a little deeper some people are just like oh like i get a racial i get a racial bonus and i get an attribute bonus if i play a blind half orc and like (laughs) you're like cool like that's cool but then like what story do you want to tell about that blind half orc that like Um, and what kind of blindness is it? And I think part of that falls onto the GM to like push back in terms of character creation, but part of it also falls on the character, uh, the player to think about, yeah. you know, you are playing a blind half orc, but does blind half orc have a name? Cool. Why is that character's name that? And like, was this person from a society where everybody was blind or was this person from a society or this character from a society? where they're kind of like tough out of the last airbender where they're like their whole story is about coming into their own and using, using their disability as a way of navigating the world that makes them even cooler than like other people. I don't know. Or the disability is superpower trope, but like turning it on its head, you know? Yeah. That Jordan, that's you so clear and articulate. (laughs) Thank you so much for saying that. And I just, oh, I had so many thoughts. <laughs> I had a really important thought. Hold on just a second. <laughs> Can I jump in for a second? Oh, please do. Um, that, I really like that questioning why you want to make your character. Like, the one, the, the thing that jumped immediately to me is like, I have bipolar disorder. And it's like, oh, you want to make your character bipolar. Why? Like, what does this bring to the table? Because usually it's like, oh, they're kooky and all these character traits that are usually negative that are associated with bipolar disorder. Yeah, that doesn't really make it like, okay, they're kooky and they have wildly fluctuating moods, except that's not what bipolar disorder is. Right. <laughs> like, you need to do your research about like what, like what the thing that you want your character to have or be and is that actually what you think it is question your um stereotypes there that's i think and does the world sorry um not to cut you off um does the world lend to that being a disability right because like some things like if you're playing uh a game in which all of you're playing dwarves that all have night vision or low light vision like the fact that like all of a sudden the human who has a quote-unquote normal uh, sight ability to perceive things uh, through sight mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. suddenly a disabled character in that world. And what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, you know? Yeah. And it, conversely, if a person came from a world where they're not a disabled character and suddenly find themselves disabled, like, what does that mean? Like, you know. Absolutely. And I think that the thing is also, like, when you're interrogating why, what kind of experience do you want to have as a player? Because I think that sometimes people just want to break out of the social constraints they Uh live with in a character, which is totally valid. But please don't choose an otherized group to do that Mm -hmm. with if that's what you want to do. Um, 
just make a character that's breaking those social rules. Mm-hmm. Don't be an insane character. I, I really hate like insane as this lump thing because I don't really feel like it exists because it doesn't actually match what we consider mental illness to be now. It's like that's just a diversity of different things that can happen with brains. And I call that neurodiversity because a lot of those things, it, it's social whether or not it's even a disability. But, like, this idea of a person wanting to play an insane character, because what they really want is a feeling of a, of a getting to be someone who does socially inappropriate things. Mm-hmm. And I totally get that, but but that's not actually what mental illness is about. Yeah. A- and, yeah. And, and that's not what, like... And again, like I'm using insanity because I feel like in part it's just a a conglomeration of stereotype because it isn't really a thing at all, really. Uh-huh. And I really think is if if what you want is to be a character that is wild, uh, strange, um, unusual, breaks social rules, just make a regular character that does those things. There are people who are not neurodiverse who break social rules. Be a bohemian artist. You know, (laughs) whatever, you know, you don't have to play a character that is an otherized group to have that experience. So please make that separation. And, And if that's the experience you want, go for it. And if you also, in addition to being that, want to also have an experience with an otherized group, you might want to think about that. And maybe those will be two separate characters, mm-hmm. uh, so you can fully separate those things uh, into two different gaming experiences. Mm-hmm. And if what you want is to play the character, it really just experience something that you aren't. Because for me, I actually, I'm genderqueer, but I pretty much have always played characters that are cisgender, just because... My gender is very complicated and making room for it is exhausting in this modern mm. culture. And I know there's some people who really are just like, I want to be in a culture that accepts that and experience that through a game. But for me, it's kind of like, I just want to be someone totally different from myself, in, at least in some ways, personality-wise usually. And so it's, I usually play someone who is a different gender than me for that. So I can totally understand maybe wanting to simulate an experience that is a different experience and and playing a group that you don't belong to for that reason. And that can be a very good reason to play, but that's where like the research comes in. Absolutely. And I, I just want to touch on one other thing with when you're choosing to play a character who is so unlike you, we are in an era where there are lots of games being played as performance, actual play podcasts and streams and things like that. And representation does matter. So I do appreciate and understand folks who want to take that leap and 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 attempt to do that. So definitely the research comes in questioning, really digging into why your character is your character. Um, but also being open and understanding about the feedback that you are undoubtedly going to get from folks mm-hmm. uh, who mm-hmm. do have that lived experience. Um, and so just understanding, understanding that that is uh, going to happen uh, and that you need to be ready for that and be, mm-hmm. be okay, you know, adjusting and, um, you know, taking that stuff to heart and, and really listening to, to the feedback that you get. So very good point. I think also just, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of research as much as possible. So if you're going to play the other, just, like, read mm-hmm. about 
the other. <laughs> like, like, whatever that other is. Read firsthand accounts of those folks. They're, we live in the information age. And so I'm one of those folks where I, like, I just don't tolerate kind of ignorance in that sort of way. Where I'm like, yo, everybody has Google in their pocket. Like, you know? <laughs> and, like, <laughs> if you... Or not everybody, but That's you have access... Active... Act, like, you have access to those things. Most people do. And if you have ability to do a podcast, um, you have the ability to a play podcast and download a play podcast. You have the ability to also look up like a book, like redefining realness by Janet mock and reading about that experience. Right. right? You right. have the ability to like look up some stuff by Mia Mingus and like understand what it means to be a disabled person. You have, uh, you have access to medium articles. I'm reading one right now called left to center that really talks about firsthand accounts of OCD. Mm-hmm. Like that's what they're talking about. I don't have OCD, but my friend linked to it. and was wanting to talk to it about it. And so like, now, if I decided to play a character with OCD, I would have some, like, empathetic understanding of what people go through. And I would be able to answer that question a bit of why is this character have this and how is it relevant to the game? Mm-hmm. And how is it relevant to that experience? Awesome. But, yeah, so I just want to encourage people to, like, get out there and read the other if you want to play the other. Because um, yeah. I think that's going to make a much more empathetic world than, yeah. like... Um, than just someone being like, I don't know. I liked, you know, like, I think there's this thing, uh, Faye was talking about it a bit, like where folks see the other and they're like, oh, this person is so free or this person is so resilient or so X. And so that's the only model of that attribute that I know. And so that's what I'm going to play it as. And I'm just like, no, like you should think about why that person seems that way to you. And, like, think about what sort of things are guiding them as well, you know? I did want to touch on a little bit, uh, and J- Jordan has touched on this a bit, but, like, well, what sort of research do you need to do? Because for me, as a person with anxiety, I am definitely inclined to over-research things, where mm-hmm. I can never actually get onto playing something because I'm still researching it. And uh, I thought I would uh, – what Jordan mentioned is, like, you know, reading autobiographies – where it kind of talks about a lot of that lived experience is a, is a good place to go. One thing that, that comes up is always uh, try multiple different authors, if, if mm-hmm. you, uh, especially if you're reading shorter articles. Um, some very unfortunate things have happened because people doing extensive research only read one author, and that author mm-hmm. was actually full of not truth, let's say, yeah. <laughs> full of curse words instead. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I think that's actually part of how Chakotay on Voyager ended up being such a horrifying racist stereotype of right. Native Americans is because they were researching thoroughly one particular author who wrote many books that were all – none of them were actually real experiences of a, a Native American culture. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Yeah. And, and so that's where like – Multiple authors, that's a big deal because that way, hopefully, you'll, if you get one author that's full of it, you will find that out. Researching common stereotypes about that particular group is also huge because it's really 
easy to fall into patterns, especially with disability. There's so much of our disability representation in media still falls into a set of patterns. Like even representations that are hailed as good representations often still have problems with them. That's kind of where we're at. So like, for example, even really good examples so there's a comic that Jordan has brought up uh, on, on my podcast, uh, Barbara Gordon as Oracle uh, mm-hmm. in, in comics is a generally considered to be a positive representation of a character who is disabled and doesn't get magically fixed. Mm-hmm. But it does fall into a very common pattern, which is that whenever characters get physical disabilities that don't go away, they're then relegated to being mentally focused characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and their physical capacity for physically accomplishing things becomes erased um, because like, somehow the idea of a woman in a wheelchair engaging in combat is not feasible uh, 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 somehow. Uh, you know, yeah. in their minds. So she must be relegated to mental things. And so that's, you know, so even good representations can fall into these patterns. For those who are interested, I have a series, which I've called Trope of the Week, because it was coming out every week, where I go through 10 different common patterns of disability representation that are um, all common patterns with a focus on what to do instead. And how to tell if you're doing it. Because there's a lot of stuff written about common myths and patterns, but there's a lot less there about how do you know if you're doing it? What questions do you ask yourself? How do you, what, what should you be looking out for to how to do it? Um, how to do things well and differently. And so that's why I wrote this series. Mm. Um, Awesome. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's gonna be perfect for answering some of the more specific questions that we got from listeners. Uh, you know, as, as in you know, how to, how to do specific things or how to avoid doing things, uh, with, with stereotypes. So we'll have a um, link to that also. Awesome. Can I throw something out there? Yeah. So, like I said, I have bipolar disorder. And so a lot of media depictions of bipolar disorder are things that are not actually part of bipolar disorder. And so make, like, read, like, I, this sounds kind of weird, but read the Wikipedia page. Not everybody has access to the DSM whatever edition they are on now. But, like, if you look at the diagnostic criteria for whatever it is your person or character has, thinking, oh, well, maybe they sleep 16 hours a day, six months of the year, or 16 to 24 hours a day, and how that would affect them, because Mm -hmm. that's a simple bipolar disorder, not like, oh, I just get kind of sad, um, if that's something that's important. And, like, it's not going to work for everybody, but if somebody said to me, oh, where should I look for, like, the symptoms of whatever things you I have, I'd say look at Wikipedia, because it's been a great resource for me, like, finding out diagnoses for myself. So it's a, good, it's a good jumping off point if you're like, what character traits does my character have that correlate to this disorder if that is something that is important to you? And, like, like there are other websites that have more detailed information, but, like, look at the resources, like, the references on Wikipedia and be like, oh, well, here's a link to, like, a Psychology Today article about new stuff. I mean, <laughs> it's just, like, knowing knowing what what things your character would have mm-hmm. if they're, like, if they have Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, maybe their mouth's kind of weird, <laughs> but that 
is a diagnostic criteria. Um, criterion, I think, whatever. But knowing, knowing sort of the baseline for what somebody who is diagnosed with something would, might have, I guess is where I'm trying to go with that ramble. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, sorry, that was great. One more resource out there that has really helped me is tvtropes.com or, mm. uh, yeah, tvtropes.com. Cause it's, uh, it's sort of like these, a uh, treasure trove of pop culture tropes. And you can go there and just like look through really good tropes about all sorts of things. Um, like they, they have tropes by topic, so it's really cool. Yeah, so check it out. I I would exercise a little bit of caution. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, yeah. I, I, is yeah. the thing that's where Faye was going. Sorry. <laughs> I just wanted to say they yeah. have no value judgment at all on any of their tropes. So some of the mm, tropes are yeah. perfectly neutral things that happen, and some of them are like they're explaining a perfectly horrible trope that's just a horrific thing and it's sometimes there's some sense of it's obvious maybe if you're paying attention that this is a bad representation Uh, and sometimes Mm -hmm. it's just written in such a value neutral way that you're not really sure if this is a problem Mm -hmm. or not if you didn't know yeah i'm a fan of value neutral uh but sometimes you do need like, no, this is a bad trope. <laughs> don't do this. Don't do if this. you can avoid it, yeah. don't, don't do this. Yeah. So taking all of these resources together and, and using, you know, your your own comprehension and skills to make sense of it is definitely the way to go. I also wanted to say, um, one of the places I do a lot of research when I'm trying to come up with characters for my writing or for that I'm going to game that that works really well is YouTube. There are a lot of amazing neurodiverse or disabled Mm -hmm. YouTubers that have whole channels where a lot of what they talk about is their personal experience. So you can actually get into a lot of the actual nuances of daily life because some, sometimes certain symptoms, certain symptoms you can kind of figure, oh, insomnia. I can kind of guess what that's going to do. But other symptoms, it's like, I'm looking at it from, like, I start with, like, Wikipedia or whatever. I'm just looking at what is this thing. And I'm like, I just don't understand what the lived experience of this thing is. And then I go to YouTube and I can Google that particular diagnosis. And there's usually multiple people who live with that experience who are awesome people talking about that. And that can be a great resource for learning in a much more how does it affect day-to-day life sort of way. And also a great way to help challenge your own stereotypes because a lot of these people just in who they are and how they're representing themselves are challenging some of the more blatant negative stereotypes about things. And so I just wanted to put a shout out for that. Um, Absolutely. Well, uh, at this point, do you guys have any, any closing thoughts, anything you want to make sure we, we touch on before we wrap up? Um, I was just going to say that I'd be willing to, like, people wanted to talk to me about, about my experiences, specifically as a person with these disabilities. I'm open to questions. I have a Tumblr that's public, so I can leave the URL at the end, too. 
Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, if, if anybody else has anything they want to they wanna close on, or we'll get to uh, where we can find you guys online. Hmm. <laughs> uh... <laughs> we talked about so much. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah I, I guess we can get to closing, unless, Jordan, you have anything you wanted to say? Mm-mm, no, I was thinking about where you can find me online. All right, well, where can we find you online? Uh, there's not a lot of places. Like, I, all of my online stuff is personal, not definitely public um except for my twitter which is like nothing about nothing about this stuff but more about comic books and ux design um and that is at underscore j o k u g e so j as in jordan o as in orlando k as in car no k as in i don't know no kangaroo kangaroo k as in kangaroo (laughs) (laughs) U as in Uganda uh, G as in game and E as in Eugene or elephant or elephant yeah I don't know why I went with Eugene I I used to have to know the actual alphabet for the things I've forgotten all of them so (laughs) sorry I'm no help Um, (laughs) Uh, how about you, Anna? Where can we find you online? Um, I tumble at arc towards the sun dot tumblr dot com. And Faye. Yeah, so I got a lot. All of this, like the Unfamiliar Heroes uh, podcast series, is part of the Writing Alchemy podcast. So at least for the moment, I I I'm gonna be alternating. Uh, potentially fairy tales with these games. These games are going to be like a huge part of what I'm doing, but eventually there may be some fairy tales as well. But they're all part of the Writing Alchemy podcast. And um, so writingalchemy.net, both words spelled in the standard ways, that's where you can find Magic Goes Awry, the gaming system that I just wrote, <laughs> the Writing Alchemy podcast, uh, Unfamiliar Heroes-specific content, uh, at some point, I am hoping to do some text-only stories because some people do better with uh, text uh, as and also as an accessibility way that some people can get that. So we've got all the Unfamiliar Heroes content. I've got stories and articles. So all of that is writingalchemy.net. Um, but you can also follow me on Twitter at writing underscore alchemy and on Facebook at facebook.com slash writingalchemy. And I'm particularly good at putting up announcements anytime I've got something new on the Writing Alchemy Facebook. And so those are kind of my main social networking things. I also have a Patreon as well. That is patreon.com slash writingalchemy. And that also gets announcements when I have new content as well, Um, which now I believe you can follow people on Patreon without... Uh, necessarily um, uh, pledging any money. So that can also be uh, a newer way to follow people. Oh, that's awesome. And we'll have all of those links in the show notes. People can follow everybody and see what's going on with Unfamiliar Heroes. I'm excited to see what's coming up. Thanks, all of you, Jordan, Anna, and Faye, for coming on and talking about all this stuff. We got, we got a, we covered a lot, but there's still so much to talk about. So absolutely. Cool. Absolutely. So I think I think we'll uh, we'll continue this online. Thanks again to Faye, Jordan, and Anna for being on the show and for having such an awesome chat with me. You can find their links as well as a lot of the stuff we mentioned in the show notes. That's it for this week, heroes. You can find Modifier mostly on Twitter at Modifier Podcast. 
We also have a Tumblr, Facebook, and G+, with varying levels of upkeep success, all under the same modifier podcast name. You can email me directly with questions, comments, or show suggestions at modifierpodcast at gmail.com. Modifier is a proud member of the OneShot Podcast Network, an incredible family of RPG podcasts that include shows like OneShot, Campaign, Backstory, Adventure, Neo Scum, System Mastery, and Talking Tabletop. System Mastery follows Jeff and John as they scour the bargain bins of game stores across the country to bring you up-to-the-decade reviews of failures and secret successes of RPG history. Thursday night at 9, after an all-new Becker. Find out more about all these shows at OneShotPodcast.com. Modifier's theme music was created by my favorite Bothan, Cat Greenfield, whose myriad talents are on display at CatGreenfield.com. Join me again in two weeks for another episode of Modifier. See you then.